Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. I will begin by featuring conversation highlights from the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. Here's what's coming up. I had a chance to talk with Sissy Graham Lynch, who is Billy Graham's granddaughter and Franklin Graham's daughter, as she shared about her opportunity to serve as an evangelical advisor to President Trump and about some of her concerns for the church today. Then, from one of the organizations headed by Franklin Graham, Samaritan's Purse, Arthur Rasco described aspects of an upcoming one-night movie release tracing the relief organization's involvement in fighting the Ebola virus. Plus, author and commentator David Limbaugh joined me and shared perspective on what the Old Testament has to say about Jesus Christ. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from a television sports director who is also a Christian author and blogger, Dave Burchett, sharing about life lessons related to biblical truth. Finally, from Leading the Way International Ministries at Atlanta's Church of the Apostles, Michael Youssef, highlighting the potential implications of people driven by a radical Islamic ideology entering the U.S. with the intent of doing harm. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Sissy Graham Lynch speaks for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Samaritan's Purse, which are both headed by her father. At the recent National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando, she was a keynote speaker for the annual BGEA Breakfast and soon thereafter visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center in the Exhibit Hall. She spoke at an inauguration prayer service at Washington's National Cathedral and has been named to an evangelical advisory group for the president. Here she discusses those opportunities and also shares from her heart about the state of the church. This is Sissy Graham Lynch. I'll never forget that day of being on stage and watching the people there to pray. And my father, who was there to read scripture, proclaim the name of Jesus. And it to go down the Washington Mall, into the streets of Washington, and through the televisions of the millions of people watching the name of Jesus was proclaimed. And it was just a moment I'll never forget. Tell me about the next day, because that was actually a day that that God gave you a position to actually speak his word, to speak to a number of influential people. What did you want to, what was on your heart? What did you want to say? Yeah, in that I was asked setting? to pray on peace at the inauguration uh, prayer service, uh, the day, the morning following the inauguration. And what a time in our country we are so divided. You look at the numbers of after the election, we're literally divided right down the middle. And we do need peace in this country. And there's only one source of peace, and that's the Prince of Peace, and that is Jesus. And we have to call on him um, as a nation and ask for his help. Well, you are part of a group of people that has been chosen to be faith advisors, if you will, to President Trump. Your father, from what I understand, is is someone that has attracted Mr. Trump's attention. He has surrounded himself not only in the cabinet, but also with his selection of Vice President Pence, Mm -hmm. with people that have a strong faith component. And in the campaign, he had the Evangelical Advisory Committee, and that has that work has continued. You've been brought on board. Tell me about what that means to you and what you sense is, is your message or what you would want to, to speak into those conditions. 
You know, as God has given me this opportunity, I feel completely honored. But my prayer is always like, Lord, wherever you call me, I'll go in the name of Jesus. And I pray that I'm always honoring and that I proclaim it boldly and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, so I hope in those moments where that I'll just be able to speak truth and God's truth during these times of sensitive times in our country uh, where people are hurting, people are frustrated, um, people don't even know what to believe from the facts that they're hearing or if it's not facts. So I hope during this time um, that I'll just be able to help speak truth and bring um, a sense of peace that can only come through Jesus. Well, this is a, a difficult time, and I heard a, a video message at the Billy Graham breakfast this morning from your father about the, the turbulent times in which we live. And, you know, when you, when you think about the variety of, well, philosophies that are out there, and it's very interesting how a number of these philosophies, this is something that I've been seeing over the last few weeks, especially since the inauguration of President Trump, is you have a number of these different agendas that are all coalescing together. And the one thing, you know, you would say that, well, these are all disparate types of agendas, but they're all uniting as one. And the one thing they have in common is that they stand in complete contrast with the Christian worldview perspective. So in that time when we see a number of different philosophies, different agendas that are united against us, what do you see as the role of Christians, the role of the church? We as Christians, one thing is we have to come together. We have to put um, different beliefs aside and come on the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, but we have to prepare. And when I say prepare is we have to prepare ourselves with God's word, which is our only two-edged sword as we go into battle. It's the only thing we are going to be able to fight um, to correct, rebuke, and teach a forever compromising world that's coming against us. We have to know what we're rooted in and what our foundation is, and that is God's word. Um, and young Christians, uh, maybe millennials, I'm a millennial myself, they don't know what God's word has to say about homosexuality. They don't know a biblical worldview on abortion. Um, they have to educate themselves, know what they believe, why they believe it. It has to be our foundation because in today's society, um, right and wrong is based on feeling one day. One day is based on science. It changes daily. God's words, God's standards, they don't change. And we have to know what we believe and why. Sissy Graham Lynch here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting her website at sissy, C-I-S-S-I-E, GrahamLynch.com. Well, Sissy's father, Franklin Graham, is the head of Samaritan's Purse and International Relief Ministry. Arthur Rasco is with that organization. He is the director of a film called Facing Darkness, which will be in theaters one night only on Thursday, March 30th. He visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB 2017 and discussed elements of the film detailing efforts to combat the Ebola virus in Africa. Here now is Arthur Rasco. Ebola hit West Africa in 2014. Samaritan's Purse had been in country for, for more than 10 years. And, and in, in the 1990s and early 2000s, Liberia had had, had a, a terrible civil war. Okay, and and so Samaritan's Purse was there helping people, helping the country recover from that civil war, that, which had really devastated the country. And so our teams were were on the ground there, and then come forward 
a few years later in 2014 when Ebola started to hit in Guinea and Sierra Leone, well, it started to cross over into Liberia. And Doctors Without, Doctors Without Borders were, were, was responding in Guinea and Sierra Leone, and then they had their hands full over there. They looked at, to our teams and said, listen, you have doctors, you have medical personnel, you have a whole team of people, and you have 10 years worth of relationships. Can you help us respond? And so when, when, when all kinds of organizations were backing out of the country and, and weren't, weren't able to, um, uh, to, to, to respond, Samaritan's Purse, we said, we have to. We have to help people that are, are suffering and dying at the side of the road, right? And so this story facing darkness is, is that of the Good Samaritan set against the backdrop of Ebola as, as we see our teams, our doctors, Dr. Kent Brantley and others work to help those that were suffering from this, from this awful, awful virus. Mm. And so for people that may not be familiar with the Ebola virus, of course, it seems like, you know, a century ago that took hold and so many people were concerned about this. It was affecting thousands of people. People were losing their lives, you know, and all of a sudden it disappeared from the headlines. As, as, there, as a lot of things do. <laughs> yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk of Ebola. But, you know, at the time, this was something that was devastating. Talk about what would take place typically in the life of someone who had contracted this virus. Well, you know, this, this, this virus up until the time, you know, in, in about 2014, in, in those early days of, of the ep- epidemic, the virus had a 90% case fatality rate, meaning nine out of 10 people that contracted this virus died. And so it was, it was, it was devastating. And, and there was no, there was no treatment. There was no, there was no cure. And, and so it was, um, you know, people would, would just suffer and die from this. And then what's worse, what's worse is that family members would get it and then family would take care of family, but then not realize how contagious it was. And then because they were taking care of their mother, their father with this awful disease, then they would get infected. And then it just got, that just caused it to, to spiral and get out of the control until, until we, could, we could really teach people about this virus. They could take it seriously and, and, and they could seek medical care as soon as possible in circumstances where, where doctors and nurses were wearing the pr- proper protective gear and, and, and they could take care of Ebola patients effectively. What was the nature of Kent Brantley's work there in fighting the Ebola virus? Dr. Kent Brantley went to Liberia in 2013 before the outbreak occurred, right? He just went there to fulfill a missionary call. He wanted to share the love of Christ, and he thought the best way to do this was through medicine. So he became a doctor in order to share the love of Christ, and so he went to Liberia to do that. Then, in 2014, Ebola occurred, and so then he, he, he stepped up to the plate and said, okay, we're going to take care of Ebola patients. I'm not going to leave. Samaritan's Purse is not going to leave. We're going to work with, this, with SIM. We're going to get trained by Doctors Without Borders. We're going, to, we're going to engage in this fight. As hard as it is, this is what I want to do. And so and, and, and he, he talks about how, how he wanted to take care of patients like, like they were his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, as if they were family. So these weren't just faces. These were 
loved ones, people he people he loved and cared about, and that's why he couldn't leave, and that's why he he chose to 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 take care of these patients who who had literally literally had nowhere else to turn. Arthur Rasco here on the intersection. Learn more about the film by going to facingdarknessmovie.com. The Samaritan's Purse website is samaritanspurse.org. Well, more material from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB in Orlando. Author, attorney, and columnist David Limbaugh joined me to discuss what was written in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus. He is the author of the book, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Here now is David Limbaugh. They just come up with these all kinds of theories, and they, they use literary criticism, analyze the style and the context of the book to say that there must have been three different writers. They base it on nothing else. And the truth is there are commonality between uh, the, the beginning and ending sections of Isaiah, and there are, more, there are more similarities than differences. And we have no reason to suspect the early church attribution to one Isaiah. And so if he wrote it hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years, 700 years before the birth of Christ, and then had contained such predictions as King Cyrus, by name, will release the Jews from captivity and allow them to return to their land and rebuild the city. That Cyrus is mentioned 150 years before he's born. Mm. Think about that. Yeah. And then he does what, what Isaiah said he would do. So those kinds of things blew me away. How can you deny that? We're not talking about Nostradamus who says Hister and not Hitler. We're talking about errorless, <laughs> errorless predictions. Yeah. And... I think the timeliness of this conversation, we are a very short period of time before Easter Sunday. And when we, let's take the book of Isaiah, you see these very precise expressions of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Isaiah 53, obviously, is one of the passages that comes to mind. But throughout Isaiah, throughout the book of Psalms, you see time after time where what happened to Jesus through his death was actually documented. Micah 5-2, yeah. be born in Bethlehem, riding in uh, to Jerusalem on a colt, donkey. You yeah. know, those, those things were predicted. It's just, it's pretty uh, phenomenal stuff. So what, as you began to, or as you studied this, what was the tipping point for you? At what point did, as we might say, the light come on and you said, this is, this is for me. I want to pursue a relationship with Christ. Well, I don't know that I can attribute it to one lightning bolt moment, but I think the cumulative impact of the various apologetics material I was reading, apologetics had a great impact on me because I yeah. had what I at least thought were intellectual doubts. I, I usually, I, I think now that I've come to study this and, and lived it, I, I think, these, think these doubts we think are intellectual are really uh, a substitute for some other uh, impediment we have. Uh, whether it's uh, pride or dealing with our own sin or whatever it is, and it keeps us from coming to Christ. But I did have some truly, I don't know if you want to call them intellectual obstacles, but one, and, and it's a common one that so many people have, is it, it is so basic, it's almost be embarrassing to, to articulate, except you'll see people all the time, even people who are atheists today, you get on Twitter arguments with them, which, by the way, is fun. <laughs> um, and God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is all-loving, omnibenevolent. Why would an omnipotent, all-loving God allow people to suffer? Why would he allow this kind of evil 
uh, and suffering to occur in the world. And so it's kind of a one of those doubts, one of these things that bother people that they don't even look at the evidence, whether his, his, uh, Christianity is, is historically true, whether Jesus was born, whether there is historical evidence that uh, he lived and, and then died and was buried and then his uh, grave was empty, his tomb was empty, or whether he was resurrected, is overwhelming evidence. If you watch Lee Strobel's movie, The, the Case for Christ, which is coming out soon and it's being premiered here. Overwhelming evidence, more uh, for the old for the the New Testament than any other book of ancient literature. We're talking about the the, the literary reliability of the ancient text. You got you got more evidence of that than any other ancient text, and you've got all kinds of uh, of evidence that supports the notion that Christ was a historical figure who actually did die and was resurrected. So even if you have all these doubts, like why would a, an all loving God allow people to suffer? Why would there be this kind of sin? Uh, pervasive sin in the world, if you had a God that could prevent it, then, then you're, you're not even allowing yourself to look at the evidence. So let's say, so I finally got to the point where I didn't resolve all doubts about everything I had, but I knew that the evidence for Christianity's truth claims was overwhelming. Yeah. And to the, thing, to the extent that I still had some doubts, I realized that those were the things that I had to work on. Not that I'd closed my mind. I had opened it to the truth. And the truth is that Jesus lives and he died for our sins so that we can live. David Limbaugh here on The Intersection. You can connect with him through his Twitter feed at David Limbaugh. That's L-I-M-B-A-U-G-H. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests on the Meeting House program and the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including video excerpts of conversations at NRB 2017. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Author, blogger, and sports television director Dave Burchett joined me recently on the Meeting House program to discuss some of his material in the book, Waking Up Slowly, Spiritual Lessons from My Dog, My Kids, Critters, and Other Unexpected Places, in which he shares some life lessons from a biblical perspective. This is Dave Burchett now. The premise of the book, to boil it down to a, to a really brief, brief synopsis, is we are the most connected culture in history, but arguably the most disconnected from God, one another, and ourselves. There's a lot of reasons for that, and that's what I explore in this book. One of them is obvious, devices. We are addicted to these smartphones, and and I I share throughout that I was that guy. Uh, Social media, we value busyness uh, more than, than we should because we look at that as a measure of how important we are if we're really, really busy for God and just in our general lives. Worrying, uh, comparison, lack of gratitude, all of these things are 21 different chapters where I identify something or some action that causes us to be disconnected from God and one another. So that's the journey, and it was a fantastic experience, at least for me, uh, and I hope when the reader goes on the journey with me uh, that they will also experience that kind of eye-opening, wow, there, there really are 
sacred moments, and mm-hmm. I don't want to miss them looking at a screen or worrying about something that's not worth worrying about. I understand that Psalm one thirty nine is one of the founda- or is is one of the foundational passages for this book. Waking up slowly, elaborate on that if you would. I love the psalm, and and it's so beautiful and, and poetic. And David wrote this, and it's, we're not sure when he wrote it. My feeling is he wrote it later in life because it's just so insightful. I, I feel like he needed to have you know some mileage on him to to come up with this, but basically he says three incredible things that God knows everything about us, God is everywhere we are, and God ordains everything about us. And if we believe that, it should really change how we go about our business, our daily business. If God knows everything about me, there's no hidden sins. I don't need to worry about the government snooping on me. There's nothing hidden in my life. So I need to just fully lean on God's grace and his forgiveness. You know, be open with myself and, and my community about my flaws and my sins and, and work on that together. If he's everywhere I am, then I take comfort in that, knowing that he's there. He, he knows what I'm doing. He has my back. I don't need to be afraid. And if he ordains what I'm going to do and everything, and it, he's already ordained what I'm doing, then there's a purpose for me. And if I just walk with him in fellowship, that purpose is going to be revealed. There's a, there's a reason that I'm here. Mm. There's a reason that you're here, Bob. Every, everyone listening, God has a purpose for you. And, and it's exciting to think, and I know me, I know how flawed I am, but it's so cool to think that God, before I was born, had ordained a spot, a purpose for me in, in the body of Christ for his purpose it's mind-boggling. The whole Psalm 139, I could just spend all day just thinking about all the ramifications of that. Wake us up to the significance of this title, if you will. Actually, the title came from my friend and my literary agent who had kind of held on to this for years because he was going to write a book with the title using it himself. And when I began to write it and flesh it out and began to realize all of these things that I'm learning as I put a little more mileage on my life odometer and things that I'm understanding and seeing more clearly. He said to me, I want you to use my title, Waking Up Slow Down. I said, no, 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 Don, that's yours. He goes, no, no, you've nailed it. I want you to have it. And so the title of this book is really very precious to me because it was a gift from my friend uh, that he had held onto this title for years. But it's really what's happening. I, I, grew up in a very legalistic church environment, struggled for years and years and years trying to be worthy, trying to perform, and I finally understood the grace of God. I finally understood that it wasn't about my work, but the work that had already been done on the cross for me, and that I didn't have to strive to win God's favor, that God's favor was bestowed on me because of the finished work on the cross and that it was just my faith and trust that pleased him, not me doing 50 meetings or a or hundred things for Jesus. It was simply resting, abiding, and trusting in him. So I woke up real slowly to that truth, and boy, what a game changer it was. Dave Burchett, who serves as director of television for the Texas Rangers baseball team. You can learn more by going to the website com. 
The book website is wakingupslowly.com. Well, finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's the founding pastor of Church of the Apostles in Atlanta and founder of Leading the Way International Ministries, Dr. Michael Youssef. In our conversation recently, he discussed threats and issues in the world. As he outlines in the book, The Barbarians Are Here, Preventing the Collapse of Western Civilization in Times of Terrorism. This is Michael Youssef now. I have actually been uh, writing this book for the past 20 years. Wow. Uh, Although I've written well over 35 books, this one has been the absolute burden of my heart. Um, And and I I mentioned that the National Religious Broadcasters, when we launched the book uh, in early March, that when I spoke, opened the convention 10 years earlier, my message was from Jeremiah, where he saw the judgment of God is coming, and the Babylonians, who the, the, the former-day terrorists, like our modern-day terrorists, were coming, and they will judge Israel because Israel turned its back on God. And in reality, what really even uh, helped me in understanding uh, this historic context is reading the book of St. Augustine, The City of God, and how he was trying, in fact, when he wrote the book, he was writing it to encourage the Christians who, when Rome fell at the hand of the Visigoths or the barbarians, they they brought about this fall of Rome as a result of sin and debauchery. But instead, the pagans blamed the Christians. And so St. Augustine wrote the book, The City of God. And I realized that we're living very, very similar times to that of Jeremiah and that of of St. Augustine. And and, um, my reluctance was I I wanted to be absolutely sure that I'm doing something that is uh, consistent with the Word of God. And so I basically have a training in my uh, doctoral training at a secular university in sociology uh, back in the early 80s when I went and, uh, and interviewed some of the now referred to as Muslim extremists, and I got into their head. And my dissertation actually is in most university libraries around the world. And so with all of that background and all that information, I felt that this is the time to issue the Kralian call of Jeremiah for people to repent and turn back to the Lord before it's too late. Uh, Europe had started turning their back on the truth, and by thus they created a vacuum in their society. And who fills that vacuum? The Islamists. And I'm not talking about just Muslims in general, just those Islamists, those who have the ideological bent of destruction of Western civilization so that they may rule it and thus bring the will of Allah of dominating and bringing the Sharia to Europe. And certainly we are maybe a few years ahead, but not by many years. And uh, I have done the uh, sociological, the historical studies, and I can give you one example of why this is not a, a fantasy and it's not just a dream. Uh, if you take France alone, just one country, France, there's six million Muslims there, and they are producing four and a half children while the French population producing zero or even some years below zero. It's a matter of time as this population, and their writers, the thinkers behind the extremists, have written very openly and, and uh, uh, without reluctance uh, 
to, about uh, about all this, and they consider this to be their third jihad. The first one was 700s, the second was the 1400s. Failed, they came all the way to Europe, knocked on Europe, they got turned back, and they consider this is their third and final jihad, where they're going to do it by birth rate and by investment of the petrodollar in Europe and the European uh, countries. Michael Youssef here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website ltw.org. That stands for Leading the Way. Well, this has been The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you'll find a link to the download center. You could also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.